This podcast is supported by MedMastery. At MedMastery, you can learn some of the most important clinical skills like echo, advanced EKG, coronary angiography, and PCI basics, pacemaker, and ICD troubleshooting, and so much more. All their award-winning courses are CME accredited, and as a sweet bonus, CardioNerds listeners can get an exclusive 15% discount on a lifetime subscription. So head on over to www.medmastery.com forward slash CardioNerds today. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hello, cardio nerds. It's Dan Clark here with DNA. It's my pleasure to welcome you back to our next episode of the ACHD series discussing advanced heart failure therapies, including mechanical circulatory support, and heart transplantation for our ACHD patients. Let me first introduce our ACHD fellow discussant today, Dr. Andy Pissner. Andy is a fellow Northwestern undergrad and ACHD fellow currently at the University of Washington. He completed his medical school training at the University of Rochester and then his internal medicine residency, adult cardiology, as well as advanced heart failure fellowships at the University of Wisconsin before moving to Seattle. Andy, welcome to Cardio Nerds. Thanks a lot, Dan. I'm excited to join you guys today with our faculty discussant, Dr. Rafa Alonso Gonzalez. I have only known Dr. Alonso here through his great work in the field of heart failure in the adult congenital heart disease population. So it's a real honor for me to be able to share the platform with him today. He is a graduate of the Universidad de Navarra in Pamplona, Spain, before pursuing his cardiology training in Badajoz and Madrid, Spain. And then he went on to London for additional training in adult congenital heart disease where he stayed on at the Royal Brompton and Harefield Hospitals, where he was the lead clinician and coordinator of their advanced ACHD heart failure service, which included the combined ACHD transplant clinic. More recently, he has joined the University of Toronto, where he is now the director of their ACHD program. So welcome. Thank you very much for the kind introduction. It's uh, my glad pleasure to be here to share with uh, you guys this amazing initiative that you have put in these uh, episodes together. So thank you for inviting me. So Dr. Alonso, as an ACHD fellow myself, I'd love to hear how you got interested in adult congenital heart disease. So that's, that's a long story because actually it was by accident. So I, I finished my training in cardiology and was uh, really interested in pulmonary hypertension. So I trained in pulmonary hypertension in Spain and my mentor told me that uh, if I wanted to be good at pulmonary hypertension, I had to do a fellowship in ACSD. So then... That's what I did. I applied to, to the fellowship in London and uh, I went to the UK with all intention to train in ACSD and come back to Spain to be a pulmonary hypertension doctor joined with ACSD. But uh, I fell in love with a speciality and I just never left London. So I, left. I went back to Spain for a year and came back to London afterwards, but never left the field and from London came to Toronto and that's motivated me to continue to do ACSD. But I started in this, I have to accept accidentally. That's awesome, Dr. Alonso. It's fun to hear your story of how you got to the field. I think like many of us, we not necessarily started out myopically focused on ACHD at the beginning. And then once we had a taste of it, we were stuck. We're, we're hooked. Uh, thank you for sharing. Andy is both an ACHD and advanced heart failure doctor. I'm, I'm really excited to hear your unique perspective on this topic. So to start, let's review the scope of the problem. How many ACHD patients have heart failure? How fast is this population growing? Yeah, Dan, so this this is a really big problem. And 
it's a challenging question to answer in part because of the challenges in collecting data about this group. There's a lot of heterogeneity in both the underlying anatomy, the surgical repairs and palliation, and there's really no standard definition of what is heart failure in the adult congenital heart disease population. But depending on what groups you look at, what resources you use, you can pretty confidently say that heart failure is the leading cause of death amongst patients with adult congenital heart disease. And depending on how you describe what classifies as heart failure, you can see that in a large portion of the patients. Study from Europe saying that there's approximately 22% of patients who've undergone an atrial switch procedure uh, have symptoms of heart failure. Similarly, you can see that in probably up to 40% or so of patients who have a Fontan palliation. But again, this all kind of comes back to what would you say is heart failure and what is not heart failure? Some people would probably go as far as to say that everyone who has adult congenital heart disease has heart failure because they have structural heart disease, but that might be taking it a little bit too far. So I think that is absolutely true, but we have seen, I've been doing clinical analysis for, for quite, quite a while, and uh, we have seen a change since in the, it's true that the main cause of that is heart failure, but we have seen a change in how patients present. And uh, with the young population, you're still having arrhythmias as a main cause of, uh, of problems for them. And where as soon as they turn 40, we have already enough evidence to see that uh, about 40 heart failure is the main cause of that in this population. And uh, one of the problems that we are having is that, as uh, Andy said, this is a very heterogeneous population and having heart failure treatment for all of them and being able to make a guideline that uh, tell us how to treat these patients is challenging, it's not impossible. And that is one of the, the major problems that we have as, as well as their access to advanced therapies and, and transplantation makes quite challenging to treat this population, but at the same time, it's very exciting and uh, one of the most interesting parts of the field, in my opinion, all done bias. <laughs> it's okay to be biased. And thank you both for that information. So obviously this is a tremendously heterogeneous group and patient population, and this is going to definitely make things quite a challenge in order to study which patients will do best with transplant. But Andy, how many patients with ACHD end up actually undergoing transplant or uh, requiring mechanical circulatory support? One of the papers I like to point to people when answering this question is the study from Brian Maxwell and the group at Stanford who published a study using the U.S. transplant database called the Scientific Registry of Transplant Recipients, or SRTR for short. And essentially, this is the database we use for transplant in the United States for all these studies. And they found that the proportion of heart transplants for congenital heart disease has been steadily increasing since the late 80s. And between 2010 and 2012, accounted for about 4% of all the transplants that were performed. And then as far as mechanical circulatory support goes, that's an even more challenging question. Again, just because the data is significantly more limited than what we see in our non-ACHD counterparts. But there's a, another great paper from Christina Vanderplum and Ari Cedars that's in the Journal of Heart-Lung Transplant from 2017 that looked at the Intermax registry, which is kind of an equivalent thing for mechanical circulatory support in the United States. And they found that of the 16,000 or so patients in their 10-year study period, only about 126 adults were identified as having adult congenital heart disease with uh, mechanical circulatory support. However, this small group of patients did notably have a, a comparable survival to their non-ACHD counterparts with a systemic ventricular assist device. 
And ACHD patients, if you look at other parts of the world, such as the European equivalent registry, which is appropriately called Euromax, you see a larger portion of the MCS recipients have congenital heart disease, but smaller numbers there than what we have in the States. Thanks, Andy. Dr. Alonzo, I'm really curious what you think of these numbers. Given that about 1% of the population has congenital heart disease, it seems like that's a, a low percentage of, of patients. And since heart failure is so common in congenital heart patients, uh, it seems like it's, it's a low number of patients going on to advanced therapies. Do you think we're potentially underdiagnosing heart failure in ACHD or, or more under-referring or is it a combination? I'm curious what your thoughts are. I think the short answer probably is a combination of the two. So I think one of the main problems comes from us as a providers that uh, we are treating patients that are, are used to be limited and we fail to identify those signs that are actually signs of getting worse into this, what we might not having a definition of heart failure, but there are signs that you can highlight or identify in patients with, for example, frontal circulation or systemic RVs that can trigger that referral to the heart failure unit or, or that process of, as of uh, starting the, the transplant route in this patient. So that's one of the main problems, identifying the population in a chronically limited patient. And the second problem is the lack of cognitive heart disease doctors doing heart failure. And this again is a bias because this is what I do and what I've been doing for the last seven years of my life. But having the patients referred to be assessed for transplant in a transplant unit with no ACSD input makes these patients less suitable for being well assessed properly when come from time into transplant or even to offer them a heart transplant. The third problem that I see is uh, the listing criteria have recently changed in the US and Canada is we're very lucky because we have the congenital heart disease patients have, have priority for many reasons. But not having a listing criteria different from the congenital heart disease patients compared with non-congenital heart disease patients is a problem. And I think make them less accessible for, for transplant or advanced therapies. And probably one of the main problems is that uh, who does the transplant? And, and that is for me a key factor. So why I started on doing congenital heart disease heart failure, I asked one of my friends that was a cardiac surgeon, non-congenital, and this is back me practicing in Spain, why don't you transplant a phone plan? He was very honest. And look, if you get a phone call at uh, three o'clock in the morning that you have a, a heart offer and you have a dilated cardiomyopathy or a phone in the list, and both of them are at the same level of uh, status, then I choose the, cardioma- the, the dilated cardiomyopathy because uh, it's a transplant. And that was an honest answer that shocked me. And, uh, but actually it's true. If you never had done a, tra- a fontan before, you cannot be transplanting a fontan. And that's my, my bias. But I think that one of the major reasons why we have less transplants in cognitive heart disease is because our cognitive heart disease surgeons are not as involved in transplant as they should be. Thank you, Dr. Alonzo. I had not appreciated the surgical considerations of approaching a, a patient with adult congenital heart disease for transplant. You know, in my simple mind, I thought swap it out, swap it in. But obviously you raise the the complexity of it by thinking about the prior anatomy and how to actually make it work. And so I appreciate that very much. And and Dr. Alonso and Andy, if I'm getting this down accurately, it sounds like we may both be under treating heart failure as well as under referring these patients for advanced therapies. Andy, are there just too few providers and centers capable of taking care of these patients? 
That's a great question. I think that accessibility to care and expertise are certainly components of the problem. But like Dr. Alonzo was saying, the organ allocation systems that we use to prioritize patients for transplant play a really pretty large role here as well. And as he pointed out, we have different allocation systems here in the United States, and we only recently updated ours in about October of 2018. But that system is very different than the Canadian system, which is different than the systems used in different countries in Europe or or Australia as well. Uh, And this is true kind of across the world. And so kind of comparing them from region to region is a real challenge because you're kind of working in a different set of rules for every place that you are. But that being said, it's really hard to discuss the American allocation policies, which is what I'm obviously more familiar with having trained here in the States and how they impact the adults. You really can't discuss this until you talk about two kind of key papers. One is Melanie Everett's 2011 study, which is in Journal of Heart-Lung Transplant, and then Waith Ushawabke's paper in Jack from 2016. And the take-home from this first paper is that patients with congenital heart disease who are on the heart transplant wait list are less likely than their counterparts to receive a transplant. And this really holds true when, even when you divide them by their initial listing status. And then the second paper where we look at the other side of the issue is how often do these patients die or become delisted while they're on the wait list? And they found that patients with congenital heart disease who are listed as the highest possible urgency status, and this is in the old system. So they, the patients who are listed as 1A were more likely to die or be delisted, presumably due to clinical deterioration compared to their non-ACHD counterparts. That being said, aside from policy, there are unfortunately multiple other potential transplant barriers for patients with congenital heart disease. And that includes sensitization, meaning that they have developed antibodies that would make them potentially challenging to not be a good recipient for certain donor organs. In Canada, they actually are kind of leading the way in this and that part of their prioritization policy is that they actually have a listing status for those patients who are highly sensitized. Unlike United States, which there is no such component, although it's been pretty extensively discussed at the transplant meetings. Similarly, there's issues with donor-recipient size matching for the allograft, psychosocial barriers, and other anatomical or surgical considerations that can make this more challenging for patients. It definitely makes sense. And thanks for that, Andy. But how do adult congenital heart disease patients do once they do end up getting advanced heart failure therapy, such as heart transplantation? So do patients do worse given their prior complex anatomy, as Dr. Alonso brought up earlier? How do they do, especially compared to their counterparts without, such as the dilated cardiomyopathy patient that we alluded to earlier? Yeah, and this is the real crux of the issue here. We have known and continue to see for decades now that patients with congenital heart disease who are transplanted have a worse early mortality compared to their non-congenital heart disease counterparts. So if you look at their survival curves up to a year, patients with congenital heart disease receiving a heart transplant perform worse than those patients who have a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy and some other forms of indications rather for transplantation. But if you stratify people, once you look at patients who have made it out to one year, what you actually see is patients with congenital heart disease perform significantly better than their counterparts who are listed for other indications. And so you have this trade-off that patients do worse early, but they do better if they make it out to a year. And I think one of the things that we have to kind of always keep in the back of the mind is that that curve is getting closer and closer over time. That is to say, 
we're making progress in cutting down those early mortality losses in that first year. So I, I totally agree with that. The data that we have available since that uh, the, these patients have a high early mortality, but of course they do much better afterwards. However, the new data that are coming out is uh, are, are telling us that we can be as good as the non-assisted transplanted patients in the early period if we work together and we have a proper team and we work from the patient selection. I think, well, in my personal opinion, one of the problems why we had such a big mortality in the historical cohorts is because, as I said earlier, if we, we tend to identify these patients too late, and send them too late to a transplant. So if you transplant somebody that is very sick, then the patients want to do worse, right? But uh, we here in Toronto, for example, now our mortality is equal than the mortality in, in non-coital patients. I, I'm talking about, about early mortality. The long-term survival is uh, better as the HLA data shows, as Andy said. But I think one of the key factors is that, uh, is that we have uh, a team that work together from the cell patient selection, patient follow-up, anesthetists, surgeons, post of the period, and discharge of the patient. So it's a, a quite robust teamwork for making these patients to succeed throughout the transplant. And every single detail has to be watched throughout the period. Dr. Lenz, it sounds like um, really systems of care are critically important in terms of collaboration and bringing different providers together so that we identify these patients, get them referred and evaluated early on, and then get to appropriate timing of more durable support for them. So, you know, I wonder what are some of the systems that are in place to, to try to improve the outcomes of these patients or like, like you mentioned in terms of what you guys are doing locally in Toronto, have you heard or, or seen other uh, systems of care being implemented uh, globally to really address this problem. Before I came here, so in 2012, Toronto started a ICSD half-filler clinic, which uh, implies that before that time, every single patient that was referred for transplant was referred to the half-filler team or the transplant team. Since then, every single patient uh, referred for transplant is referred to the half-filler clinic. And the idea is the patient is being referred to the half-filler clinic as soon as they develop half-filler. This is exactly the same model I had in the UK and uh, at the Bronton. So every patient with heart failure or, well, we had some criteria, which is beyond to the, 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 the point of discussion today, but we had the specific criteria where the patient should be referred to the heart failure clinic. So patient come to the heart failure clinic and some patients will go to transplant assessment, some patients will go to, to treatment optimization, but they continue to be follow up in the heart failure clinic if transplant is going to be what they're going to need long time. Some patients come to the Hafela clinic, they improve and they go back to their own clinic. And uh, after when we decided that the patient is going to be transplanted, then we have a team of people that sees the patients always the same thing. So we have our trans, one of the biggest changes we did is the transplant was done before by the general cardiac surgeons. Now it's done by the congenital surgeon. So every single patient is seen by the congenital surgeon and by the general cardiac surgeon as well. We have three anesthetists working on the transplant group, and uh, one of the three will see the patients beforehand, and we discuss the patient in our rounds, in the congenital rounds. If as a team think that the patient is transplantable and it's going to be a successful transplant, then we discuss the patients with a, a half failure team. 
half area team also assess the patient before the discussion in the half area rounds and or in the transplant rounds. And where after the patient is assessed by us and by the transplant team, we together in a, in the transplant rounds discuss the patient, but by then we have already probably had uh, agreement on the patient. Uh, if the patient goes into the list, for example, for the front end patients, we decided how far we're going to allow the donor to be. And normally we just choose local donors. Where the main work starts is, is the day of the transplant. So when the patient is called for a transplant, either we are two people here doing half a uh, in the NCSD group. So one of the, one of us is going to be in the hospital from the time that the patient is called. We will work together with the surgeon and the anesthetist pre-transplant. I personally physically in the OR during the whole transplant. If it's a fontan, if it's a biventricular heart, probably not. But in every single fontan, I'm physically in the OR. And I think that's important because what's happening in the OR might determine what is going to happen immediately postoperatively. And after we work very close with the transplanting, as soon as the patient is transplanting, go to the, to the ICU. And from there, we work very close with the, with the heart failure team and the ICU team to just control every single it's like a micromanaging of every single metabolic change or heart rate change, a physiological change of these patients. You, you have a fountain that you change the heart, but the patient is still being, having a multi-organ failure after the transplant. It's a patient that had a fountain for 25, 30, 35 years. And because you give them a new heart, you don't make them already a normal circulation. And I think that was, is one of the main issues where people die. The biggest mortality occur in the perioperative period. And I think this one of the main concepts to change that mortality is having the SSD team involved in that period and thinking that what you are treating is still a fountain, but with a normal heart. So it's easier, in my opinion, to treat somebody that doesn't have a low cardiac output state, but is still having a kidney that doesn't have reserve, a liver that doesn't have reserve, a gut that might be a problem, and suddenly the body is not used to have normal cardiac output, so that's going to have a reaction. So I just can give you guys an example. In the last font and transplant that I was present, the patient was a very, very high-risk patient. So she had a drop in blood pressure during the induction and significant drop in blood pressure. We thought that we almost lost the patient. We managed to get her back. And it was only three, four minutes, no more than that. And that had a massive impact on the liver. So in the first 12 hours, her liver, her liver had a, a liver shock, which I knew exactly why that happened. I knew exactly what to do. And I didn't freak out because I knew that because of what happened in the OR, and therefore I knew that would be resolvable. If I hadn't been present in the OR, I would have thought that something was wrong at that time and something was going wrong with that patient. I might have made different decisions for managing that patient. That patient was discharged in day 10. And she went home 10 days after her heart transplant and is doing fantastically well. Wow. It sounds like you have these, this major multidisciplinary coming together between a group that thinks lives and breathes transplant all day long with a group that lives and breathes congenital heart disease all day long and utilizing the machinery of the transplant machinery that's set up for the general patients with, you know, advanced heart failure and connecting in adult uh, congenital patients using that machinery, but then having that by play interaction together is really a setup for success for your patients. Andy, is there any other thoughts that you have on this subject? I think he hit the nail on the head here that thinking about these patients not as a usual heart transplant, 
patient, but rather a Fontan patient who now has a quote unquote normal heart really kind of changes the paradigm about how you look at them. How do you interpret the information you're getting in that early perioperative period, which is kind of the make or break time for a lot of these patients. I'll just echo what he said that I, I think that the key to success for this group of patients in reducing these early adverse outcomes is that we are performing transplants at centers that have expertise in congenital heart disease. And, and maybe even more so places that have expertise in doing congenital transplants, which are not inherently the same thing. But I think we're starting to get some really good data to suggest that if you do congenital transplants at higher volume centers, the patients are going to do better. And this is true both in the early and in the midterm as well. And then we, we started to recently here in the United States have this American Congenital Heart Association accreditation. And there's a great paper bias, but it's from our group here in the University of Washington that says if you look at patients who are on the wait list, who at an institution with this ACHA accreditation, they have lower waitlist mortality. But then if you look at the groups that have the highest congenital transplant volume in each of the UNOS regions here in the United States, those hospitals as a group have better one-year mortalities than the rest of the hospitals that do congenital transplant. And so I think that there's a really strong argument and a stronger argument by the day, that regionalization of congenital transplant to improve outcomes is one of the ways that we can really help get this curve more in line with our non-ACHD counterparts. It's a challenging question to try and figure out how do we do that equitably and making sure that all patients have access to that care, especially if you're really rather remote. I think places like Canada are somewhat leading the way in this area and that not necessarily every congenital transplant is being done at every transplant center in Canada, but rather they're focused and more of them are being done in select centers. And I think that we see that here in the United States, that if we kind of clustered where we're doing our transplant, we may do a lot better than we're doing right now. Well said, Andy. This has been a really fun discussion as a, the scope of the problem and some of the unique nuances of caring for patients living with adult congenital heart disease and heart failure. So what do you say we apply this to a case? Oh, Dan, I, I completely agree. And this is one of Ahmed's favorite parts of these episodes. And this gives us a nice opportunity to wish him happy anniversary to him and Riddy. And we're glad that he made the wise choice of sitting out this recording so he could spend the day with his family. So kudos, Ahmed. We miss you. But definitely, Andy, share a case with us so we can review some of the things that we've said earlier. Sounds good. So the case here, we have a 36-year-old female her original anatomy was that of a double inlet left ventricle with L malposition of the great arteries. Initially, she underwent a classic atriopulmonary fontan palliation, which was complicated subsequently with multiple atriorrhythmias and multiple ablations before undergoing a fontan conversion to an extracardiac conduit. And then she has several venovenous collaterals, which have been previously embolized or occluded. And she also has developed protein-losing arteropathy. At this point, unfortunately, surgical and percutaneous interventions have been exhausted and she is now being considered for advanced heart failure therapies. And so the question we pose here is, you know, how is her evaluation different than a patient who has conventional anatomy? Oh, wow. Hold up, Andy. I think I got this. I've, I'm immersing myself in this adult congenital series. So I'm having flashbacks to our awesome two-part series on Fontans with, with Danielle and Dr. Yuli Kim. So this patient has passive pulmonary blood flow through the Fontan circuit. 
which was converted to for better efficiency from the classic atriopulmonary fontan to the extracardiac fontan. The blue blood from the IVC goes through the extracardiac fontan, a fixed surgical tube that doesn't grow, as Dr. Kim pointed out, up to the right pulmonary artery. The upper body blood drains via the SVC directly into the right pulmonary artery via a bidirectional glen. So blue blood turns into red blood, and then this oxygen-rich red blood returns to the pulmonary veins to the common atrium and has two ways to get to the left ventricle, the tricuspid valve and the mitral valve, before getting pumped out of the left ventricle across the VSD to the aorta, which it arises from the right ventricle. So how did I do with that anatomy? Dan, you nailed it. So apparently you have been doing your homework during this series. Congratulations. Dr. Alonso, this case is obviously pretty advanced. Uh, how would you think about the evaluation for this patient differently than our non-ACHD patients? While I was listening to the case, uh, there's one thing came to my head as that the first thing I would think is, well, this patient has an excess stepnotomy for his spontane conversion. Is going to be that a problem for a new transplant? So before we consider to, to convert patients here, we see whether a transplant would be a better option because every time that you do an excess sternotomy, apart from increasing the risk of the transplant, you might make a patient not transplantable if you get uh, the structures to stack on the on the sternum. But having said that, how would I approach this is uh, is a, a difficult question and uh, with uh, multiple parts of the answer. So one of the main problems when you or when I face a, a transplant in a, a frontal patient, this 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 patient is quite advanced and uh, it's no doubt that needs a heart transplant, but sometimes that's not that clear. Uh, making the patient to realize that they need a heart transplant is a challenge. And that and that's for me is one of the big, biggest challenges sometimes. You see that things are failing, but the patient doesn't see it. And to convince the patient that needs a heart transplant is difficult because they feel okay. They have been limited themselves throughout their lives and you do a exercise test and the big due to is nine, but they're still feeling okay because they have adapted to that to that exercise capacity over time. So for me, that is one of the biggest problems. The second problem in a frontal patient, every time that uh, I approach a transplant assessment, I look at the frontal as a multi-organ failure. And I think that's one of the key factors when you assess these patients and something that I learned that even if the kidneys look okay, they aren't okay. So even if the patient have a normal creatinine, those are kidneys that have been in low cardiac output since the day one, that since the frontal was completed, it's a low cardiac output state and the kidneys are probably at the maximum that they can give and uh, they don't have much reserve. So you might have a normal creatinine, but you know that that's going to be a problem afterwards. The liver... What they're going to say about the liver that is not written everywhere since the biggest problem when assessing these patients, do we need to do a liver transplant along with a heart transplant? Is a patient candidate for a, a, a single heart transplant? Assessing the liver is one of the biggest challenges for these patients. Again, something that the patients sometimes do not understand and you just tell them, well, you know, we're going to assess your liver. You might need a liver as well. So, well, I only have a heart problem. Why my liver is a problem now? So assessing the liver uh, is a big deal. And I don't think we have the answer which patients benefit from a heart and lung or a heart alone. And uh, we are pretty much in this, in our center, a heart alone, if possible. The second problem is the primary pressures in front of them because assessing the primary pressures is challenging when you have different primary blood source. But 
actually, I'm not sure that makes a huge difference. The problem with the font tank, you're always going to underestimate the primary pressures. And uh, it's very well-recognized literature that these patients have always after the transplant higher pressures than they had before. And uh, it's the underestimation comes from source errors. As, so, as I said, you have different primary blood flow sources, but also because you have a local decaput state, and therefore if you have low primary blood flow, your primary vascular resistance is going to be low no matter what. But I don't think that's a big deal afterwards, something that you know that you might have to deal with postoperatively, but shouldn't be a big issue. Sensitization is another problem that these patients are highly sensitized because of uh, previous operations or not. And that's why uh, coming back to my point at the beginning, every time that you're going to do another heart surgery in these patients, you have to consider if you're going to increase the risk of sensitization and after these patients are going to have less chances of having a, a transplant. And that's something that I always consider or when you think about giving them a blood transfusion, if it's not needed, you might want to hold back and not to give it, right? And one of the biggest issues that we spend more time here is in the technical issues of the heart of, of the transplant in these patients. So we always talk to the surgeons, as I said earlier, we involve our cardiac, our congenital surgeons because they are the ones doing the transplant. The main issue is, is the resternotomy. And the biggest question is, is this patient, uh, is the resternotomy safe? Why I say this is because every surgeon can tell you, well, you always can do a femoral bypass, put the patient on bypass before opening the chest, and every chest can be open with a femoral bypass. But we do know that if you do a femoral bypass in a fontan and you don't have a graft very close and very early in the OR, and the longer you keep the bypass time, the higher is your risk of mortality in the fontan patient. So we try to open the chest with off bypass, and we try to avoid patient to the patient on bypass until we know that the organ is, is going to be in the short time within the OR. So it's true. There's a way of getting away with having a aorta stuck to the sternum, but we know that if you have a fontan that is already borderline with a lot of multi organ failure and you're going to have a longer bypass time, then you're going to increase your risk of mortality. And the second problem is this patient is a, is a double inlet and probably technically the only problem is the, is the transposition. But if you have a left atrial isomerism, dextrocardia, then tech, with a bilateral gland, you have to think about how you're going to fit the heart there, what connection, connections you're going to make. And also you have to, pre, to plan in terms of the donor. We always tell whoever is going to harvest the heart what we want, extra aorta, extra SVC, so if the patient has a left SVC, we always bring a larger denominator to connect the left SVC to the denominator. So, so you have to plan how you're going to do your connections before even harvesting the heart because you might end up not having enough tissue to do the whole reconstructions, which is another factor to increase mortality in these patients. So all of that, has, you have to have it in mind. And that is why for many of the things I said, you need a, somebody trained in ACSD both clinically and surgically in order to understand many of these issues. Well, Dr. Alonzo, that was such a fantastic overview. Thank you very much. I really loved how you emphasize from the patient's perspective, because I think that that's something I've appreciated this year as an ACHD fellow, is really how much some of our Fontan or most of our Fontan patients have been so resilient over their lifetime, adapting to low cardiac output, and that often they may not even appreciate some of the subtle changes that have, have chronically been taking place. And so, you know, a lot of times the first step in the battle really is 
convincing our patient that, that something has changed significantly and then we're, we're now really moving on to advanced therapies. So I, I think that's an excellent point that you brought up in addition to so many other excellent points. I'd love to hear a, a little bit more just about how you would kind of uniquely think about the, the consideration of heart and liver versus heart alone. As I said earlier, we always try to do a heart alone instead of heart and liver every time that's possible. So we have the liver team here is quite is heavily involved in the decision making. So we have our liver doctors that follow up our patients and when they develop frontal liver disease and mainly if they have nodules more than one centimeter, they are always assessed by the liver team every six months, even before transplant is considered. When transplant comes into place, then all of them are even if they weren't under liver assessment, are assessed by the liver team and by the clinical liver team and by the transplant. We don't do routinely liver biopsy. We only do biopsies in patients that might have a species of HCC. Otherwise, we don't do liver biopsy to decide whether or not the, the liver is transplanted. Uh, it needs to be transplanted. And we basically do it based on liver or synthetic function of the liver and imaging. So or every single frontal liver is fibrotic, no matter what. And uh, few of them have a severe advanced cirrhosis that uh, needs a, a liver transplant. And one of the main factors that can help you to make that decision is the size of the liver. The bigger the liver is, the better the liver is going to be. The smaller the liver is, it's just, it's just the worse the liver is going to be because that means that the liver is so fibrotic that it becomes very tiny and small livers actually is a bad thing for transplant. So we have a very close collaboration with the liver team. So far, while I've been here, we haven't transplanted any heart and liver. So all of our transplant fontan has been transplanted with just a heart. Many of them with, I would say, with advanced cirrhosis, but normal synthetic function. And the good thing is that we follow them afterwards. But we have seen that actually the fibrosis improve over time. And I think that is the data we do not have. I think we do not have a degree of improvement afterwards. I think many teams have moved to do a heart and liver transplant in every single fontan. Probably there are new data say that might be better for the heart to do a heart and liver, but you are using two organs in one single patient and you increase in the risk of the transplant because it's a, a dual organ transplant and the liver is not an easy transplant to do. And it's a lot of debate whether you should do a sequential liver heart or do a, a simultaneous liver heart. So this is not even something that we have answered. As I said, all of our frontal transplanted in the last three years since I've been in this institution. And when I was in the UK, we only had one patient with a heart and liver as well. So majority of our patients been transplanted just with an isolated heart and they do well and the liver gets better. So the problem here is we do not know what are those criteria for when the liver is not going to cope. And that's, for me, exciting part of the field because it's an area where we have to work together with the liver teams. And I don't think the answer is giving everyone a heart and liver. I think the answer is for us to identify which are those predictors that are going to make that liver to fail and therefore that patient benefits from a heart and liver. And what are those predictors? Actually, you can say, well, this liver is going to do well, then I won't transplant the liver. So it's a challenging question with no answer. And I do not have the answer. And I don't think I will have it in my lifetime. But I think it's a field where we have to work extremely close with the with the liver teams. The main problem is to find a liver doctor interested in frontal liver, which I'm very lucky that they have one. I really appreciate that perspective, Dr. Alonzo. You know, our center is the high volume heart transplant center and do both 
heart alone and and heart liver and i think you you really emphasized a lot of the the pieces of this debate that is such a central debate in the chd community about whether or not to do heart or heart liver and, and fontan patients so i love the fact that that you really brought home that collaboration is so essential and creativity and really this new frontier of unknowns and and setting out to answer some of these questions those are pieces of achd that really excite me and keep me so interested in the field i i did want to ask one kind of follow-up question that uh, is very transparent specific but i think is highly relevant now with the the hep c donor era so how does that change your practice in terms of consideration of hep c donors for these patients is that on the table if there's associated liver disease it's on the table and uh, our decision has been not to offer hep c donors to patients with fontan hearts we do it in the non-fontans and uh, we have transplanted one with a non-fontan. In the fontan patients, we have decided not to do it. There is completely no data. It's just because you are scared that what it might happen, might nothing might happen. But uh, until we have more data, we have decided not to use a hep C donor for, for fontan patients. But that might change in the future. We have started the hep C donor program just, I think, last year. So far, they are doing very well in the non-congenitals. But uh, the fontan is unknown and probably probably might be okay, but we it's already another extra risk of a high-risk transplant already that we do not want to take at this stage. Dr. Alonso, you've given us quite a lot to consider, especially in patients who have often had multiple sternotomies and non-traditional anatomy. For our patient, I know we've already tried to hold off on heart transplantation to this point, but just to be sure, we've exhausted everything in our arsenal. Andy, what are some of the interventions that may help obviate or postpone MCS and transplantation? So some of the things we think about when we're looking at a patient like this is a couple of things. Is there anything we can do to kind of restore a more normal cardiac circulation or at least help support their cardiac output or address maybe some of the issues about why is the patient becoming symptomatic or running into other comorbidities now? And that would be things like is there significant systemic atrioventricular valve regurgitation that is leading to a less efficient stroke volume? And then kind of further on that point, if you have a patient who has uh, significant systemic atrioventricular valve regurgitation, you can always consider some sort of intervention to help reduce the regurgitation and improve their effective stroke volume. And this may in fact require another cardiac surgery, but as Dr. Alonso pointed out, you're going to further potentially sensitize this patient against potential donors down the road. And it's difficult to kind of figure out what the arithmetic is there in terms of how much time you're going to be able to buy the patient by doing this. If it's a, a really a young patient and the only real issue with their Fontan is that they have uh, systemic AV valve regurgitation, maybe it makes sense to do another surgery to help fix that. But if they're starting to really head towards transplantation, you have to ask yourself, should we start to think about primarily fixing this problem with a heart transplant versus the trade-offs you would get with doing a, another valve surgery. Similarly, we can look at doing interventions on venovenal collaterals and other percutaneous options that might be available for these patients that are really rapidly developing here in the past decade or so. But at the end of the day, I, I think that things that we would think about in the conventional heart failure population or acquired heart failure population, like using guideline-directed medical therapy, it's going to be a lot more challenging to extrapolate to our patients with congenital heart disease. Yes, I think that's a great point, Andy. You bring up guideline-directed medical therapy, and for a lot of our patients who have systemic RVs, 
what is guideline-directed medical therapy and what has been published and what is the definition of that. So I think you raise a, a critically important point there and another curveball for our ACHD patients. What about, um, you know, this patient had protein-losing neuropathy. Are there any specific PLE therapies that you think of before heart transplant, Andy? Well, I, th- I think there's been some really interesting early work that's come out from your institution with Dr. Menachem looking at the use of midadrine in some of these patients. And even though it's really a small case series, what they saw was patients with PLE who were treated with midadrine had improvement in some of the biomarkers we used to follow them. Things like albumin, IgG, those all trended towards improvement in those patients who were treated with midadrine. I think that other things that we can think about, lymphatic interventions, they're being really led by some of the ACHD centers here with MR lymphangiograms and then doing percutaneous interventions on those is a really interesting idea. I don't know that it's going to be the answer for all of our patients with Fontan circulation or congenital heart disease in general, but these are things that we're starting to think about as part of our temporizing measures for patients with transplant needs. That's a, a very interesting topic. PLE, I could, it's one of my, my, my areas of interest. And I think one of the problems with PLE is that PLE has different mechanisms of action. So PLE, have, we don't know why PLE occurs. That's the first point. And there are several factors involved in PLE, probably. And uh, probably with no single medication that acts everywhere where the PLE mechanisms are. Then going back to your question of midodrine, I have to say that I read your the paper coming for your institution and uh, I decided to use it. And I have to say that was uh, the biggest success I have had so PLE so far. I can, I can share the case. It's a patient with a fatal isomerism with destrocardia in transposition and he has an extracardiac fontan. PLE diagnosed at the age of six and being treated with sildenafil, uh, steroids, uh, subcutaneous heparin, and all of that comes to adult with 18 years old with that treatment every every three to four months since he's been in the adult uh, transfer to the adult he was admitted with this funny abdominal pain that we didn't understand but every time that was admitted with abdominal pain he had an albumin of 18. I was recurrent and we ended up thinking that were bouts of of uh, PLE so in, I started with increasing his uh, steroids did not work I tried him octetride, and this is when you use octetride means you are desperate because means that you have nothing else to offer. He did not tolerate the octetride, had side effects and had to stop it. So I decided to start midodrine. And uh, after 19 years, which is 19 now, he's albumin three months starting midodrine, went up to 40, and he's been for, in 40 for a year. And his abdominal pain disappeared, his admissions have stopped. So Probably what the hypothesis behind midodrine is that midodrine might have an impact on the lymphatic vessels, which is, along with the octiotride, the only drug that has a possible impact on lymphatic vessels. And I think this PLS that start very early in life uh, in childhood has a huge component of lymphatic vessels. And we do not have, well, first of all, we do not understand the lymphatics. So, so that's, that's to start with. It's something we start in university and we forget forever. And second, we do not have any good drug that actually targets the lymphatics. So this is a good example that this patient was treated for the afterload reduction component with sildenafil, was treated for the inflammatory component with the steroids, was treated with deficit in heparin sulfate with heparin, 
but was not treated for anything with the lymphatics because we do not have a treatment. That's why usually to try was what my head was about. My head was, okay, if this is a lymphatic problem, let's say, let's see if this works. And Midodrin actually changed his life. So, so he actually put five kilos. He was getting to that stage of PLE that I was thinking of transplanting him. Otherwise, had a fantastic frontal pressures in the frontal are 10, and his uh, ejection fraction is normal, has no bowel regurgitation, so he has a fantastic frontal, but was getting to this stage of PLE that if you don't transplant, then they're going to die. And actually, Midodrin made a difference. So I think we need to learn more about the lymphatics. I agree with Andy in terms of lymphatic, uh, lymphatic invasive treatment. So in getting these vessels occluded and, and, and see whether we can buy some time to this patient. As Andy said, you have to think twice when you offer a patient an operation for a valve regurgitation if that patient is not already on the transplant route. But in terms of PLA, I think we have a lot of room and a lot of things to learn. Because I'm not a fan of transplanting patients with fontan just for PLE. And I try not to do that because uh, or if otherwise the fontan is okay and just is PLE to try to do something. And I think this patient, we have bought him some time. He, he will need a transplant no matter what, but I think we have bought him some time. So that is my experience. I have uh, uh, another two patients with me dream, but it's too early to say whether that works or not. But in this patient was a, a truly success. Thank you for sharing that, Dr. Alonzo. That's, that's uh, fascinating to hear. So obviously, a lot of our patients with Fontan failure can be incredibly complex. Dr. Alonzo, you've, you practice in multiple countries now and have, uh, have been at different institutions that have a lot of experience with this. Do you have anything that you could uniquely share about the different environments where you practice and how things are different and suggestions for uh, best practices that you've seen? I've been very lucky and uh, probably too spoiled because I have the lack of working uh, in ACSD in probably one of the two largest centers in Greater Hadassus in the world, in the Pronto in the UK I here. So in terms of practice between the two centers, probably is no much of a difference in terms of the kind of population we're dealing with. So we have a quite probably all the population than uh, average centers because both centers started surgery quite early. So average age of our population is around 40, 45, and we have more heart failure probably for a single institution than other centers. If I learn anything, if you really want to do heart failure properly, you have to have ACSD doctors training heart failure. I think what Andy is doing is fantastic, having had a heart failure fellowship and, and after doing a, a ACSD fellowship is the best thing that we can try to, uh, to achieve to offer a good heart failure treatment to our population. And you're talking just about transplant and talking even during the, the time that they are just in heart failure and you can optimize them in your heart failure clinic. I think I have to point out something different between the two systems. It was that the listing in the UK is different than the listing in Canada. So I think patients in Canada with coronary heart disease have a higher chances of being transplanted. And the UK just recently had been changed the listing criteria for congenital. I still think are suboptimal, but the majority of our patients were on urgent or no urgent as, as Andy pointed out before, we have something here that is uh, patient is hypersensitized. They go to the top of the list, no matter what. And the, if you are more than 90% HLA, you just are top in the country. So it's called 4S, so our maximum, the, the higher priority. And any car, any heart in the, heart in the country is offered to that patient, no matter what. That made a huge difference in the chances of patient getting, getting a transplant. For me, a patient with a 
HNA for 90% in the UK was not transplantable. I already had transplanted one here since I'm here, one or two. And that is because of the change in the listing criteria. Those patients are normally patients that are stable, are at home, have HLA or 90%. You cannot put them in hospital because it's going to be years waiting for a heart. And uh, and the chances of having a, a heart are higher if you have that kind of listing. Otherwise, I think the thing that I would say is more important is collaboration. As I think I probably repeated this word several times throughout this uh, podcast. Collaboration means that, that you have to have not just collaboration with your transplanting or with your surgeons, just think outside the outside your ICSD team, your hepatologist, your anesthetist, your ICU. So all of that shouldn't happen isolated from the ACSD team. And we should try to really work together. I enjoy something about Toronto is that the Bronton is a standalone cardiac hospital. Only have cardiac, pediatrics, and respirology. And if anything, I like working in Toronto. I work now in a normal hospital with a multidisciplinary team. So in London, calling the hepatologist was calling another hospital, whereas in London, it's just calling the, somebody that is two floors up me. Uh, his head office is two floors up, uh, and uh, it's easier to have this interaction and this working together collaboration type thing. Thank you for sharing that, Dr. Alonso. Andy, do you have any final thoughts on this? Well, first, I'd like to say that I really appreciate hearing the perspective of what we're doing in places other than the United States and how that's different than what we're doing here. Just as a quick aside, we were talking about the success of being able to transplant a patient who has a 90% sensitization is just remarkable. You have a, almost a sense of inevitability if you list one of your patients here in the States with a 90% sensitization that they're going to end up just dying on the wait list. That being said, one of the things I think is interesting and a really challenging question to answer is how do you deal with the timing of a transplant in someone who's doing well? So if you have a, a young Fontan who's otherwise doing well, you don't want to transplant them when they're doing well because you know that there's a certain lifespan for their allograft. Even though that allograft may last longer than a 70-year-old who gets transplanted because they die of other reasons, it's not uh, transplanting somebody who's 25 years old that heart is not going to last until they're 75 years old. You're going to end up potentially transplanting this person two, three more times in their lifespan, which may be a real challenge, both from a sensitization perspective, uh, from a surgical risk perspective, from the number of sternotomies they're going to have to undergo. And I think that trying to figure out that and making sure that you are metaphorically pulling the trigger at the appropriate time, it's a real challenge. Andy, thanks so much for that. And, you know, just changing gears, uh, you know, going from technical surgical transplant details to now refocusing back on the patient. You know, we know that having a heart failure diagnosis carries a major prognostic significance. And unfortunately, being diagnosed with heart failure is now a terminal diagnosis with outcomes similar to many cancer patients. So Andy, how do you begin to have these difficult conversations with your patient in clinic, especially since some of them are generally pretty young patients? So discussing transplant and heart failure in a young patient is, I think, really challenging. And I think this is where the introduction of palliative care into adult congenital heart disease is potentially really underutilized and can be really beneficial for these patients. So starting off with just assessing where is the patient in their understanding of their condition, what the trajectory is of what their disease process is going to look like over the next 10, 20 years is generally where I start. And then 
early on introducing the idea that your patient with the Fontan is not going to have a normal lifespan, but stressing that there's things that we can do, including transplant down the road that may help them live a more normal life and live a longer life. And starting that conversation early so that they have time to process it and think about it before they are stuck in the situation where they're profoundly symptomatic and never has really thought about what would their life look like with a transplant. So getting our colleagues in palliative care and even those few people who are doing great work in ACHD palliative care to help them better understand what their disease process is, what their options are down the road is really important. I, I cannot agree more with what Andy just said. If anything to add to what um, is being said is that I think as uh, ACSD physicians, we have a massive responsibility to discuss this with our patients. And the question that always arises, when you talk to a patient about transplant? And I think I probably do it in the day one or day two that I meet them, depending how how much the patient is mature and how much the patient knows about their condition. But the, I do it quite early and depends also how you present transplant to that. So what I, if I put a patient, a Fontan is transition, I see them in my ACSD clinic, maybe not the day, the day one depending, sometimes it's the day one depending on how much the patient knows about their condition, as I said, but quite early, I try to tell them, look, you have a heart that's known and lasts forever. It's going to take you to, I'd never say an age, but at some point you might need, you know, a, a new heart. And I try to present transplant to them as a, an option that we didn't have some years ago. And it's an option that actually we have good numbers. And despite of uh, what Andy said, that we don't yet know when is that time to trigger the transplant referral, it's good to involve the patient very early for them to manage their expectations in life. I think one of the most frustrating things for a patient or in my experience is that's coming to a situation where they need a transplant, they are referred to the transplant team. I have had this situation in my clinic and said, well, nobody had told me this. So nobody had told me that I would need a transplant with 30 years old. And I feel deceived by the doctor. So I think if you get the concept earlier and when they start not to do well, it involves early palliative care. I don't think palliative care needs to be involved in patients that don't need a transplant. And we have no other options for them. I think palliative care should be part of the team within the transplant assessment because, as Andy mentioned, they have more resources how to discuss with them how to deal with this awful situation in their lives. These are very young patients. But one of the key factors is to uh, introduce the concept of transplant early in their lives for them to manage their expectations. Something as simple as, when did you decide to have a child? So that's, unfortunately, I discussed that with my frontal patients. Unfortunately, you do not have the choice of deciding whenever because your frontal might not be okay by the time you decide to have that. So even if you have a 20 years old in front of you that doesn't have a partner, of course, in their heads not to become pregnant, I think it's fair to tell them, look, this is might be a problem. You might choose to ignore this, but at least I gave you the information. And yes, with this information, you will manage how you want to deal with your life. So I think these concepts are important. So we as our providers should take responsibility of informing the patients of what might or might not happen in the future for them to make an informed decision of uh, what decisions they make in life. 
Thank you both for those great points about some of the shared decision-making and really empowering our patients to make sure that they understand their anatomy, physiology, complications, as Andy said, trajectory is, is really so critical as part of this process. Uh, so for our listeners, I'd like to ask you both, Andy and Dr. Alonzo, what are some, some big takeaways for you who are straddling these two fields of adult congenital cardiology uh, as well as advanced heart failure in terms of where the fields go in the future? I think that one thing that we have, have not discussed much today, but I think it's something that we have to work on more and uh, some data coming out is the mechanical support in this population. As Andy said, these are patients that, you know, you don't know when to trigger the transplant assessment. And it's true that the allograph has a limited time uh, lifespan, but there's a group of patients that are not going to be transplanted either. So I think where uh, the use of mechanical support in patients with congenital heart disease in general are more challenging within the frontal population, I think can increase one, you know, their chances of surviving while they're on the waiting list to have a heart transplant, despite of all the complications that you can have on, on mechanical support, but also might give a chance as, as a destination therapy of those patients that might not have the transplant option because of high sensitization or because of renal dysfunction or comorbidities that might not be, or even for anatomical reasons that they cannot have a real sternotomy. So I think that is one of the areas that we have to have more research on that area. And the other area which I think we will have less advances, but we, we would love to have, is medical therapy. I think medical therapy is going to be very challenging to find evidence in medical therapy because of the very small population, but also of the heterogeneity of the population. We said that the quite heart disease patients are heterogeneous, but if you get a font, just only the fontans, two fontans are not the same. It's not the same to have a systemic RV that having a single LV or an I personally don't think it's the same to have a left reason than having a, a cytosolid. So I think that that every patient is going to be different. The venous venous circulation that they have, how many collaterals they have, how the cardiac output goes around the heart. So I think it's going to be extremely challenging to have a medical therapy-based evidence uh, for this population. But, uh, but it's something that I think we have to try to work on, but with a very open-minded and forgetting that the, the about guidelines. It's just I'm thinking outside the box. The only way, in my opinion, of uh, advancing in this in the field is having people that think outside the box. If we try to be very strict in what uh, in what we apply to these patients, I don't think we would get very far. I'll just add that I think that it's a really exciting time to be getting into the field of adult congenital heart disease and heart failure in this population for exactly the reasons that Dr. Alonso has already noted. And it's really exciting to see the advances we're seeing in the mechanical circulatory support for this patient population that really has extremely limited data. But I think some of the things that you hear about in either individual case reports or limited case series gives me a lot of hope for those patients for whom transplant is not going to be an option. As far as the takeaways from this, I think that the things that I would stress is Really having an early integration with between the ACHD team and your heart failure team and recognizing those patients who need to start a heart failure evaluation and start thinking about that question of when is transplantation going to make sense and if and is transplantation going to make sense for this particular patient. 
And that's a challenging topic and a challenging conversation to have. But I think the earlier you can start that conversation, the better. The other part that I think uh, this is more speaking as the group as a field, I think that we need to have more conversations between the ACHD community and the heart failure and transplant community. We have to answer the question is, how do we want to approach this unique patient population that is only going to continue to grow in the coming decades as regards to our policies approaching heart transplantation? And that's different in every country. And the answers we have are going to be different for every group. But I think having that conversation about how are we going to make sure that we have equitable access to organs for patients with congenital heart disease? And how are you going to be able to fairly weigh the risks of transplanting these patients? Or potentially, how are we going to make it easier for transplant centers to do transplants in patients with congenital heart disease without having this ever-present threat of adverse outcomes, ultimately threatening their transplant program and making them more risk-averse to doing transplant in the future. If I can add something to that, I think one thing that is important is that we need to increase our international collaboration. So as Andy said, every country faces different problems because of their different rules, but I think that uh, international collaboration might help to change within your country what is needed is need for these patients if we have more evidence of what is doing somewhere else that works. So I think international collaboration is, is key and we should talk more between among us instead of just just talking about only half a between the congenital heart disease doctors. I think that is extremely, extremely, extremely important to have uh, international collaboration between the ACSD and half failure teams to move this field forward. Thank you both. Uh, this has been a tremendous discussion. And I'd add, you know, I, I do a lot of uh, moonlighting on our EP service. And so we have plenty of patients that come through with adult congenital heart disease that are getting upgrades or device changes, a lot of device therapies. And sometimes we're titrating their, you know, heart failure regimens as they're here again with, with help. But it's another endpoint to, you know, notice like if your patient is being treated for heart failure and they have adult congenital disease, this is another opportunity. I know they just came in for, you know, a generator change or something like that, but this is another opportunity to just ensure that they're plugged into a adult congenital specialist so that they get a full holistic comprehensive care viewpoint. And, you know, I just am so appreciative of being part of this discussion. And you really have exposed me to so many nuances that go into the discussions and also planning and details and post-operative planning of patients going through uh, advanced therapies evaluation with adult congenital heart disease. So this leads me to ask Dr. Alonzo, our favorite question that we ask our experts is what makes your heart flutter about taking care of patients with adult congenital heart disease? Well, probably the what made me flatter the first day I started to do this is that every patient is a challenge. So since I was early in my training, I hated guidelines. I still hate them. And that's what makes a, a huge challenge in clinical heart disease, but also the, what makes the field exciting is that we are writing the guidelines. So it's a field that we do not know what we're doing. We are trying our best and we try to offer our patients the best of what we can but actually the field is evolving every day and uh, every patient is a new challenge. I think that that's what makes me more excited about the clinical heart disease field. And that's why I went into heart failure and clinical heart disease, because if, if, even within clinical heart disease, heart failure is completely uncharted territory. And that makes me 
really excited about it. Well, thank you very much. And for our audience, you know, not only does it make Dr. Alonzo's heart flutter thinking about this and talking about this, but it also makes his eyes bright. He's just so excited to give us his time. We could tell that this is a very passionate subject of his. So this episode really highlights beautifully that adult congenital heart disease is such a broad field with so many overlaps with specialties and subspecialties and even sub, 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 sub specialties. Andy, we'd love to hear about your experience as an adult congenital heart disease fellow and career plans moving forward. I have to say it's been a lot of fun. It's been a long road to get to this point, much like uh, Dr. Alonso. I kind of uh, accidentally ended up in congenital heart disease and that I did a clinic with my mentors, Ford Ballantyne and Heather Bartlett in Wisconsin, and just found that I loved working with this patient population. And there's such a need for it, and they've just been so incredibly appreciative. But to be able to make a true impact in these patients' lives on a daily basis has been so incredibly rewarding. And then doing heart failure and congenital heart disease has been a really rewarding process, but also incredibly challenging. Uh, as Dr. Alonso pointed out, there's not a lot of people who are doing this in the world. I've been really lucky that I had the opportunity to do uh, an additional year of heart failure and transplant fellowship before my congenital training. And as I move here into my second year of ACHD fellowship, starting to think about what the long term is going to be and trying to find somewhere where I can help kind of move the field just a little bit further in the world of congenital transplant. So starting to look at that process, but excited that I think that this is an, a really great time to be getting into this very unique subspecialty of adult congenital heart disease. We need more people like you. I couldn't agree more. So, well, I, I want to congratulate you publicly for doing this because I think that uh, it's what uh, make, it's going to make the field to advance is having people train in both fields that actually know what they're talking about because this is really, really important. So congratulations, Andy, for prolonging your training, but I think that for a, for a good course. Thank you. I, I wouldn't do it any other way. It's been, it's been fantastic. Well, it's been so much fun chatting with both of you today. Thank you guys so much for joining and thanks to all of our listeners for listening along with us. Beep. Beep.